Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Very warm welcome to the uh, last uh, of our ongoing series of Shapiro lectures. I think the uh, speaker is uh, one extremely well, uh, extremely appropriate for this lecture series, Some, a man who has been uh, involved in public affairs at a very high level in relation to Russia and has also been engaged in uh, analysis and, and research more recently uh, and on the basis of the insights that he draws from his long experience. Sir Roderick Lyne has had a distinguished career in the Foreign Office too long to detail uh, here in full, but I'll mention uh, a few of his uh, appointments. Uh, he was Foreign Affairs Advisor to John Major, Prime Minister John Major, for three years. He moved from that position to Ambassador, ambassador of, for the United Nations, for the United Kingdom in Geneva, and then he moved back to Moscow. The period he was in Moscow as UK ambassador coincided with the first presidency of Vladimir Putin. It was a period of some real uh, hope of a relationship that we could call meaningfully engagement. Some even talked about integration, Russia, Europe and the West. And it is that period that he describes, or the hopes for that period that he describes in his recent publication, Engaging with Russia, The Next Phase, which was published for the Trilateral Commission in 2006. Since that period, Sir Roderick was in our embassy. The relationships between Russia and the United States, Russia, the EU, Russia and Western states have entered a clearly more difficult period. And this raises fundamental questions about Russia's future course and direction in the modern world. My understanding is that Sir Roderick is, is not going to focus on the, the present, although his talk is very timely in relation to the, the elections to the uh, Duma, which are coming up very soon but it's going to cast a net wider and look forward to think about possible directions for Russia, how we can think about the possible future courses for Russia internationally and domestically. He's going to ex explore some of these uh, dimensions, future dimensions, and then will uh, be available for questions uh, as, as normal. So, um, a very warm welcome to our speaker, and uh, I look forward to hearing how he can marry, really, the experience he has in dealing with Russia over decades uh, with uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the future, uh, thinking about the future to help inform us.
Well, my instructions from the chair are to talk for 45 or 50 minutes, which seems to me a pretty severe test of your stamina at this time of the evening, but if you're prepared to put up with it, so am I. Um, I don't think when I was an undergraduate student 40 years ago, I ever imagined that I would be giving a Shapiro lecture, given that at the time we were all reading Shapiro on the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, talking not about the Soviet Union, but about a Russian Federation that had been uh, by now going for 16 years. Um, so I would like to start just a little bit on a personal note, really to explain why it is that I'm standing here at all. Uh, I first happened by pure chance to visit Moscow as a teenager nearly half a century ago. Uh, I went in 1961 and again in 1962. And then I served, uh, I served altogether as a diplomat for 34 years, and I spent about half of those 34 years um, with suitable intervals in between uh, dealing with uh, either the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation, uh, including living there for 10 years. I thought I'd retired from Russia three years ago, uh, but it turned out that I was wrong. Um, I think I've been there about 30 times since then. I'm about to pay my 10th visit to Russia this year in a week's time. And I ask myself why it is that Russia has this pull, uh, why it is that you've all bothered to come here this evening when there are many better things you could have been doing. Um, and I think there are really two answers to that question. One is that whether you like it or not, Russia matters, and Russia is always going to matter. Uh, what happens in Russia affects all of us in Western Europe in a pretty direct way, and that is really self-evident. Uh, we're talking about the largest European nation, uh, what is still the world's second largest military power, uh, a power that's got 15,000 nuclear warheads and enough fissile material to make 40,000 more. Um, and, of course, one only has to say the two words, natural resources. So we can't ignore Russia. Uh, but the other point about Russia that I felt ever since I went there as a 13-year-old, that this is an extraordinary challenge. Uh, it's fascinating, it's difficult, it's unendingly paradoxical. Uh, it is, as I said, the largest European nation, but is it really part of Europe? A, a question that I think will be debated for a long time to come. It's a member of the G8 club of the largest Western-style industrialized democracy, but does Russia aspire ever to become a Western-style democracy? A question that I will touch on a bit later on. Um, I refuse to quote Winston Churchill's overused aphorism about the Russian enigma. Uh, I much prefer something that was written by a man called Sir George McCartney, uh, who, if he were alive today, would be, I suppose, a senior official of the department of whatever the Department of Trade and Industry is now called. Uh, and he spent two years as a trade envoy in Russia in the 1760s and concluded that the Russians were, I quote, a nation of inconsistence, contradiction, and paradox, uniting in themselves the most opposite extremes. And in trying to understand this nation, he said, we are bewildered in our pursuit, and at the moment we think the case within our reach, it mocks our eagerness and vanishes from our view. Well, I've spent much of my life trying to pursue an understanding of Russia and it has continued 
to mock my eagerness, uh, I cannot say that I have succeeded. And that is the beauty of this problem. You never ever get to the bottom of it. The perceived threat from the Soviet Union overshadowed Western Europe for most of the past half century. The issues that overshadow us now are different. They are things like climate change, international terrorism, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, energy security, and so on. But how Russia develops over the next half century will be enormously important to us, including in the management of precisely these transnational global issues. Now, I, despite the title of my talk, uh, wouldn't pretend to have any of the answers to the question of how Russia will develop, but I'm just going to try to explore some of the factors that will, I think, shape the answer and maybe uh, be so brave as to offer the odd personal view. For those who want to dig deeper into this subject than you will get from a superannuated and superficial um, retired diplomat, uh, there are a number of recent writings that I would strongly recommend. Uh, one is a short book published by the Carnegie Endowment written by Dmitry Trenin, who I think is one of the very best Russian commentators, uh, published this autumn called Getting Russia Right. Um, another is an essay that will come out in about the next couple of weeks, a very original and creative essay by Lord Robert Skidelsky. Um, it's going to be published by the Metropolitan University and is entitled Russia's Place in the World in the 21st Century. Uh, thirdly, there has been an extraordinarily interesting series of articles in the Russian Foreign Affairs Journal, uh, Russia in Global Affairs, which is very easy to access in both English and Russian on the Internet, uh, by a group of authors, uh, including Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, Konstantin Kozachov, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Duma, uh, Sergei Karaganov, Alexei Arbatov, uh, the uh, Bulgarian Ivan Krastyev, and Thomas Graham, who is a senior uh, Russianologist uh, from Washington who used to work in the White House. Um, and I plug that series because I have an article coming out in the next edition in mid-December, some of which I shall reflect this evening. Uh, finally, while we're plugging, I have brought with me ten copies of the report that Roy mentioned. Uh, which was now published a year and a half ago and is getting a little dog-eared, and the first ten people to grab them at the end are, are welcome. It's a very good cure for insomnia. Um, in my title, I start off by saying, Russia after Putin. And that begs the question, when is after Putin? So I will talk a little bit about where we're at now. And of course the answer is, we don't know. Um, all we can say, I think, with a considerable degree of certainty is after Putin will not begin in April 2008. Uh, it won't begin for several years, and possibly not, in the opinion of many Russian experts, uh, not for many years. Now, I haven't come here to talk about what Russians call the, the 2008 question or the problem of 2008, uh, but you can't completely avoid it. Uh, the bottom line about next year... Uh, indeed starting next week or this week with the uh, Duma elections is that Putin has made it increasingly clear over the last couple of years and very much so uh, over the last two or three months 
that he intends to remain in charge. He intends to retain effective power as a or the national leader. And of course, by putting himself at the head of the United Russia list for the Duma elections, albeit not as a member of the United Russia Party, which is a curious exercise of managed democracy, uh, he has turned the Duma elections effectively into a referendum on himself and a launch pad for the next phase of Putinism. <coughs> and it is symptomatic of that that the program of the United Russia Party, which will win the elections next week and is rating at the moment somewhere a bit over 60% in the opinion polls, uh, and its slogan is effectively Putin. It really doesn't go much further than that. Uh, there is, of course, feverish speculation in Moscow about precisely what mechanism Putin will use to uh, continue his control and his influence uh, after the spring of next year. Uh, there are an enormous number of possible variants, and this provides very fertile territory for Russian and foreign political commentators. I'll leave that territory to them because we can spend the whole of this evening rather fruitlessly talking about which particular device uh, Putin will employ. Uh, and I, I'm one of those who believe that Putin uh, has almost certainly not yet made up his mind. Uh, it would be characteristic of Putin not to have made up his mind. He is a man who uh, has always tried to keep his options open. He's a man who has consistently taken decisions very late in the day with very little consultation, with very little advance warning, and indeed with a liking for surprise people. Just look at the recent appointment of Mr. Zubkov as Prime Minister. He wouldn't have been on anybody's list of the top 50 possible choices for that job. Um, uh, I think that Putin uh, is very keen to avoid even remotely looking like a lame duck. Uh, I think he will deploy the element of surprise again uh, and he will uh, see how the Duma elections go, he will sniff the wind, and he will decide on his variant a, a bit later in the day. Now, what are the questions that will follow upon that decision? There are many, but they include the question of Putin's own authority. Will he be able to continue wielding the sort of authority that he has wielded over the last eight years based on two substantial election victories, uh, but also on his continuing enormous popularity throughout the country. And the problem here is that none of the variants provides an optimal solution. There is downside to any of them, whether it is the prime ministerial gambit, the resign early gambit, the put in a puppet and get the puppet to have uh, some stressful disease and resign, or whichever other gambit you choose, go for party leader and so on. Uh, there is a risk from this point on that Putin's legitimacy and his authority uh, will uh, begin to come into question, uh, but over the period ahead. And we've already seen that the infighting that has always existed, uh, and sometimes rather bitter infighting, between the different clans and subgroups that uh, Putin has led within the Kremlin, where the real politics of Russia uh, take place more or less exclusively, this infighting has started 
to break out in a more public form over the last two or three months, in particular with one group arresting members of another group, as has happened with the arrest of the deputy to General Cherkasov, the head of the narcotics agency, and then more recently while Finance Minister Kudrin uh, was on a plane to South Africa of his deputy, Sergei Storchak. Um, this is the biggest threat to the stability and effectiveness of the people who at present control Russia, infighting between them. They are effectively competing over the future division of power and the future spoils, and it could be very corrosive if this process continues. But of course the problem of the succession is never going to go away. For as long as Putin remains in power, there will always be a question of who will succeed him. So that's one issue. Another issue which relates very closely to the infighting is when jobs are redistributed, as they will be in the course of next year, which bottoms will end up on which seats. And this is enormously important because power and money are intrinsically connected in today's Kremlin. Who will control Gazprom this time next year? Who will control Rosneft? I mean, at the moment, if you take Gazprom, which represents nearly 10% of Russian GDP, you have a line of control that runs through President Putin, through Prime Minister, uh, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Medvedev, who is the chairman of the board of Gazprom, through Alexei Miller, who was put in there uh, as a personal associate of Putin, and so on. Uh, now, which of those elements, which elements in that chain will change, and so on. In essence, all of the jobs that matter could come into play, and it is enormously important to these different groups to try to secure the ones that matter. So that's another big question that inevitably comes up next year, because things are certainly not going to stay the same with regard to, to, to jobs. Then there is the question of economic policy. There is a debate that goes on, continues to go on within the Russian government uh, and the Russian administration more widely about economic policy, about how in the future you can sustain growth, about whether you need to go back into deeper restructuring or whether a continuation of existing policies will be sufficient to produce the goods. There are economic liberals still represented in the administration, even if for the last three years, with regard to big decisions anyway, they've been in a form of internal exile. And people like the former economy minister, Griff, were reduced to complaining in public about the decisions uh, of the government of which they were a part. Griff, uh, on several occasions, bitterly complained about the fact that Gazprom was allowed to acquire the oil company Sibnef. Now, he sat on Gazprom's board. He sat in the government that uh, notionally approved this, and yet he publicly opposed it, uh, which was a demonstration of how little real influence he, uh, as a, uh, an economic liberal, wielded uh, over the control of policy. But will, in the next phase, economic policy continue to be built around natural resources and monopolistic state capitalism? And I will come back to that too. Uh, and finally, the question of whether there will be a change in foreign policy, um, which I will also come back to. I think there may be a certain toning down of rhetoric after the election, but I think that in the short term, a fundamental change of 
approach for reasons I will explain uh, is unlikely. Enough of the, the present picture. Let me now turn uh, more towards the medium to longer term, the period of, say, 20, uh, 10 to 20 years from now and beyond, uh, and begin that by looking backwards. A lot of people, when they pick up their pens to write about Russia, start by saying, Russia is at a crossroads. Um, I've been guilty of using this cliche. I still pick up articles that say that. Russia at this moment, in my view, is not at a crossroads. Uh, Russia has been through a number of very obvious turning points in the last 20 years. The turning point with the advent of Gorbachev, uh, which really became apparent in 1986-87. Uh, 1991, very obviously. 1993, uh, when Yeltsin shelled the parliament uh, and brought in uh, the new constitution, uh, enhancing the powers of the presidency, the constitution that Putin himself uses uh, for his vertical of power. 2000 with the accession of Putin and indeed a burst for three years, you know, Putin's first three years, uh, of a very different sort of internal and indeed external policy, an internal policy of significant reform and restructuring, an external policy of reaching out not only to Russia's traditional friends in the world and re-establishing some links that had become fractured, but reaching out very strongly to the West. And then 2003 was, I think, the last fork in the road when the uh, sudden realization that Russia had had this huge influx of petrodollars. I mean, 2003 was a year that in 2000, 2001, the Russian administration was very nervous about. It was nervous because of a famous spike in its debt repayment obligations. It was due to repay 17 billion worth of dollars of foreign debt in that year. And it was seriously worried in 2000 or 2001 as to how it was going to do this. By 2003, they realized they had so much money that the debt spike just disappeared. Uh, that was small change. Uh, but also, that there was really so much fuel in the tank now that there was no need to keep the foot down on the accelerator of reform. This influx of petrodollars, and Russia is not the first uh, natural resources uh, country where this has happened, uh, was the death knell for internal reform. And it was also, it marked very clearly the moment when the dominant forces in the leadership were able to turn away from the policy that Putin had been uh, himself pursuing over the previous three years, uh, turn away from the idea of taking up the Western offer of a strategic partnership and turning into a much more hard-edged, hard-nosed, uh, uh, more uh, independently-based external policy. When we look at Russia's future direction, at the risk of a certain oversimplification, one can really detect among people who look at this both inside Russia and outside two broad schools of thought. The first one I will call the reversion to type school. This is the school that argues that after one of its periodic time, times of troubles, Russia is back on its historic track and will essentially stay there. That Russia has actually chosen its course for the future, that what you see now is what you will get and so you might as well get used to it. This was very neatly put in a recent letter to The Economist by a retired Sovietologist 
from the United States Navy, who wrote, any scholar of Russia knows that Russian history revolves around long periods of authoritarian rule, broken only by brief periods of chaotic liberalization before a new kind of authoritarian regime comes to power to exploit the nationalistic, anti-Western xenophobia of the Russian people. At a much more elevated academic level, um, Professor Richard Pipes, one of the great gurus of this subject, has for a very long time and uh, very eloquently argued the thesis for continuity based on his interpretation of Russia as what he calls a patrimonial state. And there's much to be said for this thesis. Russia, after all, has followed its own path of development for the past thousand years since Prince Vladimir chose the Orthodox Church of Byzantium in preference to Roman Catholicism or, for that matter, Islam. And the Orthodox Church, which has never experienced a reformation and is, to this day, rigidly dogmatic, hierarchical, and illiberal, remains an important constituent of Russia's national identity. As Russians are never slow to tell us, their country has a unique Eurasian character, a character shaped not only by uh, its religion, but by its history, its vast geography, and its harsh climate. And so the argument runs, there's a very obvious reason why Russia has never had democracy. Uh, and this is that strong, centralized authoritarian rule is the only way of ensuring a necessary degree of order in this sprawling country. Nor, for that matter, does Russia have to feel under any obligation to follow the most liberal Western models of economic development. If you are, as Russia is, the world's largest storehouse of natural resources of every kind, hydrocarbons, minerals, water, which is increasingly important in the world we live in, timber, potentially agricultural land, potentially the riches of the Arctic, uh, and you live in a world of finite resources and of sharply rising demand, then your future strength and success is surely guaranteed, so long as you keep those resources firmly under national control. So why adopt Anglo-Saxon economic methodology? If the country is orderly, if the people are becoming increasingly prosperous, as they are undoubtedly doing, uh, then by and large, they will remain content with this model. What matters is food on the plate and money in the pocket, a car in the garage, uh, better housing, the ability to go abroad, and so on. Uh, does it really matter to have a vote in a genuinely democratic election? Well, it's a lot less important. And interestingly, when you invite them to vote, as they will be invited to vote next week, though perhaps only half of them will choose to do so, they will actually vote democratically against democracy. They will vote for a party, United Russia, uh, that doesn't stand for democracy in an election in which anybody uh, who has appeared to stand for democracy, um, and this does not really include the four parties that may be elected to the next Duma, uh, has been pretty savagely attacked. Even if you had a completely free and fair election uh, in Russia, 
next week, the Democratic parties would only gain a pretty small percentage of the votes. I mean, they're not actually going to uh, even be allowed to cross the threshold uh, into Duma membership. They are so associated in the minds of the population with the horrors of the 1990s that they are tarnished. The idea of stability trumps democracy. So that is the, um, the argument for continuity. What about the opposing school? The opposing school are essentially Darwinian evolutionaries. These are people who argue that Russia is neither static nor can it be unaffected by the changing world around it. And indeed who argue that if you look more closely at Russia, if you look beneath the surface of the politics, then there's an enormous amount of change already at work. The yeast is already fermenting. This school would argue that what we're seeing at the moment is a revisionist cycle in a long and inevitably erratic process of transition that began over 20 years ago. And while Russia may not be at a crossroads now, it will in due course come to further forks in the road where decisions will have to be made again between revisionism and modernization. And this is based on a number of arguments. Firstly, and I think most importantly, the argument that the traditional economic model will not work for the long term. That an economy that is based so heavily on gigantic and massively inefficient and indeed very often value-extracting rather than value-adding state-run industries failed in the 1970s and 1980s and will ultimately fail again if that is the model that you stick with. They would argue that the prosperity that has been generated by high oil and gas prices, which indeed account for well over 60% of Russia's export revenues and a very substantial percentage of the state budget, um, that this prosperity has merely masked and not resolved the underlying structural weaknesses of the economy and that the overexposure to commodity prices uh, is indeed a point of vulnerability rather than a point of strength. Uh, they argue that sustainable growth for Russia requires diversification. Not only diversification, but much higher productivity, especially in the face of Russia's demographic problem. Here is a country which is losing somewhere between 400,000 and 700,000 of its population every year and is going to continue doing so for a number of years to come. This puts Russia in a very different category from the other big emerging economies, the other countries that Goldman Sachs in their famous report of a few years ago classified as the BRIC group because China has a large and growing population. India has a huge and growing population. Countries like Brazil have got large and growing populations. Russia is the only large emerging country that has a shrinking population. And if it is to cope with that while keeping its economy growing, uh, it is going to have to invest much more heavily than it has been doing. Uh, it is going to have to employ more advanced technology. It is going to have to employ the most sophisticated methods available from around the world, uh, it is going to have to make much better use of its rich human capital, which means, among other things, reforming uh, uh, 
the education system, which is in desperate need of it. Uh, it means improving training of every kind, and among other things, it has consequences for a military, an army, and indeed armed forces still based on the theory of conscription and mass mobilization. So the argument is that the requirement for Russia to modernize will become increasingly obvious and that this will necessitate reform of what is the biggest single obstacle to progress at the moment, which is the huge, obstructive, and very corrupt bureaucracy. Uh, the alternative to modernization would be stagnation as a relatively backward raw materials and semi-finished goods producer, and that's not something that meets the aspirations of the Russian people. They want to be a respected, competitive, sovereign power recognized as one of the world's major economies and able to compete with the world's major economies. Let me quote from the article I mentioned by Sergei Karaganov. The new epoch of competition requires the transition to a knowledge economy. Advantages based on energy resources are transient. The continuous modernization of the political system is required in order to prevent a slide into stagnant authoritarianism. If Russia does not take available, avail of the favorable economic and geopolitical situation and fails to use semi-authoritarian and state capitalism methods for moving to a new development model, the country's decline in the next epoch will be predetermined. The second argument that change is inevitable is that the present system of a country that depends only on one institution, the institution being the vertical of power uh, that descends from a single person, President Putin, through the bureaucracy and the organs of security, simply does not provide long-term stability. It does not provide for the sort of country that can be effective in the 21st century. Uh, and I will just simply summarize this in two quotations from Russian sources, which to me say it all. Alexei Arbatov. The main problem with Putin's managed democracy and exec executive vertical is that the country's present economic well-being and political stability rest on a very fragile and short-lived foundation. But then more tellingly, from Vladimir Putin himself, on the 14th of September this year, when he was meeting members of the Valdai group of Western commentators and pundits and academics, we cannot build, said Putin, Russia's future by tying its many millions of citizens to just one person or group of people. We will not be able to build anything lasting unless we put in place a real and effectively functioning multi-party system and develop a civil society that will protect society and the state from mistakes and wrong actions on the part of those in power. Now you may well argue that Putin has done very little to move Russia towards that objective over the last seven years. I think he would say, well, he had to deal with a very unstable country and he had to re-establish order. He had to get prosperity back into the system. And that this is a task that he has not been able to achieve, that he is having to leave uh, for the future, whether that is still to be 
uh, something that he personally will push through or somebody else remains to be seen. But I think he's put it in a nutshell. What you have at the moment is something that appears to be very stable. And the first word that any Russian on the street uh, will uh, give you if you ask for their view on what Putin has done for the country will be stabilnost. But this stability is, as Abatov put it, fragile. It is rather brittle. It is rather shallow because it does only rest, it rests too narrowly on a single institution. Thirdly, there is the generational argument. When you look at Russia's ruling elite, 16 years after the end of the Soviet Union, you have to conclude that we have not yet entered the period of post-Soviet rulers, leaders, and managers uh, for the very simple reason that anybody in a top position, almost everybody in a top position, is somewhere between 45 and 65. Uh, therefore, they were around 30 to 40 uh, when the Soviet Union ended, they were fully formed in the previous system. It will be another decade or more before you actually have the first post-Soviet leadership. The next generation of educated Russians, and here I do stress the word educated because there are <coughs> others around too. You've only got to look at the antics of the Nashi movement. But the next generation of educated Russians, the people who are, broadly speaking, between 20 and 40 at the moment, are, of course, proud to be Russian. They, of course, have strong feelings of national pride or nationalism, but then doesn't everybody in every country? Uh, they want to be part of a great power and a great country, but then again, doesn't everybody in every country? Many of them, rather sadly perhaps, still see Stalin as a great figure who made a few mistakes, perhaps a few excesses, but by and large whose legacy was very positive for Russia because he made it into a great power and a great, great industrialized country. And above all, he achieved the one really significant achievement of the Soviet Union, uh, which was the defeat of fascist Germany. I mean, I'm giving you the view as given to me sometimes rather startlingly by highly educated, highly sophisticated 25-year-old Russians, not just 65-year-old Russians. But these same people are part of a very materialistic new middle class. They have been exposed throughout their adult lives and before to influences from the outside world that their parents were completely denied. They've been able to travel. A not insignificant number of them have been educated partly abroad, including in places like the LSE, which of course uh, runs a joint undergraduate course in Moscow with the Higher School of Economics. Um, they, in many cases, are engaged in business with the West, either in Russian companies dealing with the West or in joint ventures or indeed in Western companies dealing in Russia. These are people who aspire to be part of the world. They are hugely talented. They are incredibly impressive in many cases. Um, they don't want to be cut off. They don't want to be second-class global citizens. Uh, they want, in their future lives, to enjoy secure pro property rights. They want to enjoy a degree of legal protection. They don't want to have to live surrounded by bodyguards. Now, 
when they reach power 10, 15 years from now, it's impossible to predict exactly how they will act. Um, and I don't think it will be simply some replica of Western liberal democracy. But it will be different. They are a very different group of people. The conclusion that Dmitry Trenin reaches in the book I mentioned, and again it's important that this comes from a Russian voice, not a Western one, is as follows. Over time, Russia will acquire more and more rightful owners, from a few dozen today to a few hundred several years from now to hundreds of thousands. Within a generation, having a single master of the land will first become impossible and then unthinkable. The powers of government will have to be separated in reality. Governance and competence are likely to emerge as criteria for grading the political regime and determining its fate. Russia, circa 2025, will still not be a democracy, but it will be considerably more liberal and modern. The liberalism that has a chance to prevail in Russia will be economically driven. Market forces can be relied upon to open up Russia even wider and help transform it even more deeply, but they need encouragement. <coughs> Let me now turn to Russia's future place in the world, to the way that her external relations might develop. Now just to look at the present, it's a rather dismal picture. We are in the middle of a very sharp backlash from the 1990s, though I personally believe that this too is a phase in the transition rather than the pattern for the future. There's been a very sharp change since 2003, and if you judge it by rhetoric, the relationship between Russia and the West is about as bad <coughs> as it could be. There's talk of a new Cold War. That, in my view, is wildly exaggerated. It is exaggerated because none of the critical elements of the Cold War are present today, nor will they be in the future. There is no ideological conflict. There is no direct mutual threat from west to east and vice versa. We are not taking opposing sides in proxy conflicts around the world. There is no Warsaw Pact uh, or CMEA, and there is no ring fence and deliberate isolation of Russia. But we've heard in the course of this year a stream of incredibly strong statements from Russian leaders about the West. Uh, there was the clarion call uh, that Putin gave at the Verkunda conference at Munich on the 10th of February, where he accused the United States of overstepping its national borders in a way that was extremely dangerous. Uh, he described NATO expansion as a provocation. Uh, in the article I mentioned by Foreign Minister Lavrov in August, he talked of a re-establishment of a cordon sanitaire west of the Russian borders. Attempts are being made, he said, to contain Russia. And then more recently, on the 10th of October, the head of the internal security organ, the FSB, General Patrushev, went so far as to say that politicians in a number of Western countries, though he didn't define them, are, I quote, hatching plans aimed at dismembering Russia. You can't get much stronger than that. What lies behind these endless claims that the West is seeking to weaken, undermine, and contain Russia and wishes to deny Russia its right to sovereign independence. Well, this could be the subject of a lecture on itself, but I will just give a few reasons um, rather briefly. Uh, firstly, 
we do have some fundamental differences of interest. We don't have fundamental differences, I think, on the big global issues of today, like, say, uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, but there is a fairly serious difference uh, over the approach to what in Moscow is called the post-Soviet space. A zone uh, that is extremely sensitive to the Russians because they see a lot of it as quasi-domestic. In opinion polls, something like 70% of Russians say that they don't really regard Ukraine as a foreign state at all. And they take a zero-sum view of the uh, former Soviet states, uh, particularly those in Central and Eastern Europe, but also in Central Asia. Uh, any uh, enlargement of NATO or the European Union, any uh, intrusions by the West there, including by Western oil companies, tend to be seen as an encroachment. And of course, this is a factor that can then be played up very effectively for internal political purposes to suggest that Russia is being encircled. Secondly, there is the legacy of history. You can't get away very quickly from the very deep suspicions that were generated by the Cold War. And you've only got to look at the affair of the war memorial in Tallinn earlier this year for a perfect cameo of this, where one could understand extremely easily the strong emotions of the Estonians about having a memorial in the center of their capital uh, featuring a Soviet soldier, a soldier of the army of occupation, and the equally strong emotions of the Russians at having this memorial uh, abruptly removed when it was a memorial to the liberation of Estonia uh, from fascism. Now these sort of issues go on for a very long time. Just say to yourself, Turkey and Armenia. Only the other day, a resolution in the United States Congress about Armenia uh, and about uh, Armenian, quote, genocide unquote, uh, caused a pretty serious rift in American-Turkish uh, relations. You ask yourself how long it took this country to get used to the idea of not being an empire, and so on. You can quote uh, a great many um, uh, examples. There is a, a lot of anger still in Russia at what was perceived as the triumphalism of the West over winning the Cold War. Uh, it may not be an issue here, people have forgotten this, but it is still a live issue. Konstantin Kozachov, in, in his article in Russia and Global Affairs, comes out with a statement, it was the Russians who really won the Cold War. They not only freed themselves from totalitarianism, but they also delivered other peoples from it. So that's the legacy of the past. Then from the much more recent past, there's a serious issue of disappointed expectations from the 1990s. <coughs> there were illusions in the West, completely unrealistic illusions about the speed with which progress towards things like democracy could be made in Russia. There were illusions in Russia that there would be a new Marshall Plan, that there would be early NATO membership, that there would be a progressively tighter association with the European Union. And a lot of this was shattered when NATO bombed Yugoslavia in 1999. That was a real uh, wake-up call uh, for many people in Russia. Um, and what you now have is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn has called the clash of illusory hopes against reality. And the thesis now is that the West took advantage of Russia's weakness, that all the concessions came from Russia, uh, as Kozachev put it again, 
uh, from Gorbachev onwards, Russia moved halfway towards the West, but the West didn't come its half of the way towards Russia. The West viewed Moscow's unilateral moves, he says, solely as an act of capitulation, which of course did not require any counter-obligations. There is a view that Russia was enormously helpful, as it was, after 9-11, but got nothing in return. It isn't actually true. Um, among other things, uh, the new Russia NATO Council was immediately established at, at the initiative of Tony Blair, and very significantly, the G8 decided that Russia should for the first time have the chairmanship of the G8, and a lot of other things that one could list besides. But the evidence is one thing, the perception is actually what counts. And there is now a deeply embedded perception in the thinking of the Russian elite, including the more moderate parts of the elite, uh, that uh, the West took advantage of Russian weakness Russia has effectively thought itself into a state of aggrieved victimhood. Another part of the problem is that we don't have shared values. We declared very easily in the 1990s in things like the EU-Russia Partnership and Cooperation Agreement that we have a strategic partnership founded on common interests and shared values. It isn't actually true. Um, Putin in the past has argued that Russia's values were European values. But Lavrov now takes a different line of argument. He argues that the Westphalian system placed differences in values beyond the scope of intergovernmental relations, and if you bring them back in, you are risking a new confrontation on the lines of the Cold War. Values are at the heart of the difference between cooperation and partnership. States which do not share values, of course, cooperate when they have interests in common. But if you're going to have a genuine partnership, if you're going to have joint membership of democratic clubs or of organizations like the Council of Europe that are founded on values, then you have to have a certain commonality of values. And there is no escaping the fact that our values at this moment are not converging, uh, especially with regard to things like the rule of law, uh, and that this has damaged the atmosphere of Russo-Western relations and the attitudes taken to the murders of um, Litvinenko and Politkovskaya are indeed cases in point. Last but not least, fueling this anti-Westernism is, of course, domestic politics. It's no coincidence that the barometer has soared as the elections have approached. The idea of inventing an external opponent is one of the oldest gambits in uh, global politics. Uh, it's a good way of diverting blame. And very importantly, in Russia, it's a way of discrediting external critics. In the past, in the Soviet Union, you could deal with external criticism simply by making it, by, by blanking it out. It didn't penetrate. Uh, now it penetrates, so you have to counteract it in a different way. The net effect of all of this is a great deal of anger and bitterness, an insistent demand for respect, a real desire to re-establish Russia as a force in the world, and a sense that by being tough and assertive and at times menacing, that that is a more effective way of achieving this than the previous efforts at sweet talk and partnership. There is an intention to the extent possible, and it's not clear to what extent that will be possible. We will see over the course of a number of years to reassert seigneurial rights over the post-Soviet space with energy and the control of pipelines and distribution networks as a prime instrument of this policy. 
the casualty of the past four years, although many Russians would actually date this back not four years, but well into the uh, mid-90s, is that trust between Russia and the West has largely broken down. Let me now look ahead. Is that going to be the case ten years from now? I think it will be less the case than it is now, so long as, and this is a rather big qualification, we can manage the current slate of divisive and potentially fissile issues, issues like Kosovo, Georgia, Ukraine, and indeed Iran, uh, in a way that does not drive us into a real confrontation. And that's no easy task. There is a risk that a long-term confrontation will be an unintended consequence, unintended either by the Russian government or indeed by any Western government. Uh, of the present frictions, although that would be extremely bad for the interests both of Russia and of the West. But on balance, as civil servants love to say, for those of you who used to watch Yes Minister, I think it more likely that other factors will come into play a few years from now. The imperatives of modernization, the advance of economic integration, the generational change I talked about, the fact that it will become clear that raging at the West and nurturing victimhood may be a useful short-term political tactic, <coughs> but it's not actually a strategy for a country. I think the angst of the 1990s will begin to fade, albeit slowly. I think Russia will begin to feel more secure about its sovereignty. And I think and hope, although I think this will be a very slow process, that some form of equilibrium will gradually be established between Russia and the other former Soviet states. I think that the array of glo glo global threats that we all face will be no less acute 10 years from now. We'd be, you'd have to be a real optimist to think otherwise. Um, and that actually is a factor that is likely to bring us together. Another factor is that we will all need over the next generation to adapt to the rise of China. And that's going to be a very difficult issue for Russia uh, just as it will be and is already for the European Union and the United States of America. I do not believe that Russia wishes to be the junior partner of China any more than Russia wishes to be the junior partner of the European Union or the United States. So my conclusions, where do I come out from all of this? First, that while the collapse of the Soviet Union is for us in the West an event that is receding into history. Russia is still living it. No Western country in peacetime has experienced anything remotely on the scale of Russia's traumas right through the 1990s. This was deeply painful. It colors attitudes to democracy, to wealth, to the West, and it'll be a very long time psychologically before the Russians can fully absorb that shock. Um, secondly, as I said, uh, I think that the, there is a degree of fragility in the stability of the present order in Russia uh, because it is overexposed to a single institution and a single commodity, hydrocarbons, um, and uh, that change is more likely to happen than not as a result. Thirdly, I would stress that we should not judge everything by politics. Uh, or by the rather hysterical anti-Westernism uh, which has 
been pumped up as the elections and the transition have become closer, and indeed which many old cold warriors in the West are only too happy to respond to. I mean, this happens on both sides. This is not just a one-sided process. When I go to Russia, I find that in the sort of contacts one has in business, in politics, in education, I do some teaching there, in different non-governmental organizations, out in the regions, uh, happen in an extraordinarily constructive and friendly way. We are still moving forward. And you can sit in a room full of people doing business, as I indeed did with Mr. Syokov, who is one of the generators of this anti-Western propaganda, uh, only just over a month ago, having an extremely constructive discussion uh, as if none of this um, political artillery uh, warfare was going on outside the room at all. There is a sort of double track operating. Uh, and that at least is a healthy thing. If we continue uh, with this form of engagement, which is what we recommended in our report to the Trilateral Commission, I think eventually it will have an effect. Uh, I think isolation uh, has nothing to be said for it at all. Um, fourthly, as I've said, I clearly align with those in Russia and outside who see the current behavior as, as a phase, a regressive, revisionist, and in some ways rather unpleasant phase, but not a particularly surprising one, one which will last for a few more years, but not indefinitely. Uh, fifthly, I would stress that we're not in a real confrontation yet, even though it sounds <coughs> as if we are. Uh, I think that Russia does see advantage in playing the role of what Robert Skidelsky in his forthcoming essay calls the awkward partner, and he draws some analogies with the way that France behaved uh, for much of the post-war period, and particularly under de Gaulle. Uh, and I think there's a big difference between that and actually setting yourself up as a confrontational opponent, as a permanent um, uh, policy. And final two points. In my title, I raised the question of integration. Um, integration is a rather strong term. One should never say never, and none of us can predict with any accuracy what the situation will be in Western Europe by the middle of this century. But real integration, uh, the real integration of Russia, into Western and Central Europe is not going to happen over the next 20 years for the very simple reason that Russia doesn't want it and Western Europe couldn't handle it. What may resume, uh, perhaps in five to ten years' time, is the process of political convergence which has been running erratically uh, for the past 20 years, uh, a process impelled by deepening business links and economic interdependence. That will depend very heavily on what happens within Russia in the intervening period. And finally, the D word, democracy. Um, of course, from a Western perspective, democracy is a highly desirable state of affairs for any country. When you're talking about Russia, we need to temper our enthusiasm with a small dose of realism. We need to remember that in every country where democracy has taken root, there have been certain common features the process has been slow and incremental. It has been bottom-up. It has been linked to property ownership and individual rights. It has happened within a pre-existing framework of law, and it has taken large account of <coughs> national characteristics. There is no single model of Western democracy, what you have in Britain or France or the United States or Germany. These are all very distinct models. Those who thought that Russia could leap at one bound in the 1990s from communism into democracy were in cloud cuckoo land. 
The Russian people acquired a great deal of freedom in the 1990s. Freedom is not the same as democracy. Some of that freedom was abused. Some of it has been curtailed. They acquired concepts of civil and political rights, including those enshrined in the European Convention of Human Rights, which again at this moment aren't being fully implemented. I believe that over time the Russian people may well choose to develop their own model of democracy. It's just that the process hasn't started yet. It will have to come from within. It won't come through finger-wagging or patronising lectures from outside, and there is no point in Western governments and Western organisations setting unachievable benchmarks of democracy as criteria for the way they manage their relations with Russia. It, they, it would make much better sense for them to focus on the rule of law. The rule of law where the commitments of the Russian government and the Russian system are clearly defined internally in internal law and in international law and where implementing those commitments would unarguably be in Russia's best interests and unarguably, I think, would correspond to the wishes of Russia's own people, whereas at the moment democracy is not something that they yearn for. And that would, in my view, provide a much stronger foundation for Russo-Western relations. I apologise for overrunning my time, as I always do. Thank you very much.